are no ushers. <laughs> Don't wait for them. Just give electronically or however God leads you. Uh, I don't know how much you see, but it is craziness, sheer craziness behind the scenes uh, some mornings as we try to juggle all of the different things with, uh, that are related to COVID and the changes and the adaptations and the last minute things. Uh, so we decided uh, that it was time to start bringing the kids back up for uh, time with children after. So kind of went through the protocols on that and we decided uh, at first and then changed our mind that we wouldn't have the children face the congregation as they always did and be on the steps because their little faces would be in the live stream that goes to the world. And we wanted to kind of keep that private and personal. So that's kind of the explanation for the back and forth. And um, yeah, it's craziness. Mask, got your mask, don't need your mask. I'll need it later. What's the, uh, what's the essence of the Christian life? Uh, what does Christianity ask of a person? What's a Christian to do? What is most important? There was a time early in my life, uh, very early, when I understood the answer to those questions to be, uh, in whole, going to church, going to church on Sunday morning. Sunday morning would come around, we'd put on the nicest clothes that we had as kids in our family. We'd load up in the car, drive downtown, go to Sunday school for an hour and enjoy that, and then endure an hour in the big old sanctuary. After that, the sort of reward for enduring an hour in the sanctuary was uh, punch, this amazing red punch at First Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, and uh, all the cookies that we could sneak. They said one or two, we kept going back. That was my idea of Christianity and what it meant to be a Christian through the eyes and the experience of a 10-year-old. And I think that may have been the experience for many 10-year-olds, many nine, eight, seven, and then older as we grow. Some of us never grew out of that, that idea of what it meant to be a Christian, uh, what the essence of the Christian life was, what Christianity asks of a person, what a Christian is to do. Now today and many uh, years later in the journey with Jesus in being in Christ for many years of uh, learning, experience, practice, listening, conversations, trying to follow Jesus, uh, some days I think I understand the matrix a little bit more. I know that it's not what I thought when I was 10. And I know that there's this and this and this to do, and good Christians do that. And there's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And some days I wonder if the more I know, the less I know. Or the more I know, the more there is. And so I circle back to what is the essence? What's most important? What am I to do? What does God want from me as a Christian? So Jesus is gonna answer these questions in our passage this morning from Mark's gospel. He has an answer, he has the answer to these questions, to my questions, and maybe also to your questions. Before we read and get back into Mark, let's pray real quick together. God, we always, we always uh, take this moment uh, to bow our heads before we read from your word. And we take it again. And we ask sincerely that you would help us, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would 
speak to each of us, that you would make us into people, into beings that are receptive to your word, to your truth, to your grace, to your reality, that you would open us to your will, that you would uh, grow in us uh, an appreciation and a devotion to your son, our Lord. Do all of these things through your written word and through your living word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in the name and in the way of Jesus. Amen. So last week we were in chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. We returned to chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. You remember that Jesus, uh, during most of the early part of the gospel of Mark, spends all of his time in the northern area of Israel called Galilee, uh, traveling around as an itinerant, and then on the skirts or the perimeter or the fringes of Galilee. Then he makes his way down through Perea, avoiding Samaria, and uh, makes his way down to the region of Israel called Judah, the center of which was Jerusalem up on a hill, the city on a hill, the center of which was, or the focal point of, was uh, the temple at which uh, the people of Israel worshiped the one true God. And so in these last couple of chapters of Mark's gospel, this is where we find Jesus all condensed into what seems like one week with all kinds of different interactions. We read about one of those this morning, started at chapter 12, verse 28. Listen closely, this is God's word. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, the them is Jesus and some officials. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, this teacher of the law asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied to Jesus. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, and with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is a pretty big statement because this man is a teacher of the law and a part of the religious establishment in the temple was fully committed to the importance and centrality of the sacrificial system and the offering system there in the temple courts. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, now Jesus reflects on his answer, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. That's the end of people peppering Jesus with questions in Mark's gospel. And during Rabbi Jesus' days in the temple courts, Jesus is up to this point always called teacher in the, in the temple he is approached by several different groups, and now he's approached by an individual, a teacher of the Jewish religious law. Everyone else who had approached Jesus all throughout Mark's gospel, and not just in the temple up to that point, was seeking to corner Jesus, trick Jesus, trap Jesus. But this man seems earnestly different, earnestly interested in what Rabbi Jesus has to say about this all-important question. He is the one teacher of the law in all of Mark's gospel who is spoken of positively or affirmatively. In the Jewish scriptures, there were 613 different laws that guided a person's faith, 
that shaped their understanding, that guided their practice. Among those were 248 different laws that were phrased positively. In other words, do this, do this, do this. There were 365 more laws or commandments that were phrased negatively. In other words, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Really nice that there was one of those for each day, lovely. And there had been and there would continue to be for centuries before then and centuries after this question that circulated among the rabbis and among the teachers of the law and the experts in the law and the religious leaders of all of these 613 different commandments in the law or in the Jewish scriptures, how do we rank them? We always wanna rank things. We always wanna know what's at the top, what can I discard, what needs my attention, what's most important. And at various times over those centuries, right before Jesus and for several centuries after, the best, the greatest, the most prominent rabbis offered a variety of different summations of the law. And so one particularly curious and respectful and sincere religious teacher went to Jesus, asked Jesus for his take on this centuries-long and ongoing conversation. And Jesus' reply could not have been all that surprising. It wasn't all that unique. Jesus quoted two verses from chapter six of the book of Deuteronomy, which is right at the heart and soul of the books of the law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the heart of the Jewish scriptures. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy six. And he begins with, and that passage is known as the Shema, which in Hebrew is simply the word listen, the verb hear, heads up, listen, hear, Shema. And the two verses, or the several verses, five actually, that began with the Shema, or listen or hear, were the words that every pious Jew for 100 or 200 years previously and continuing and going on would say and recite first thing in the morning when they rolled out of bed, regardless of whether or not they were late for work and had to do it in the car, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And Jesus adds, with all of your mind. Every morning, first thing, every evening, right before they went to bed. And so not a surprise that Jesus quotes that verse, or that two verses, that passage. And over and over and over, we see the breadth of what Jesus meant, and what Moses meant when he recorded those words from God, love God with all of your resources, all of your faculties, all, 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 all recorded four times to help us understand the comprehensiveness of adoring God. And the word love in Hebrew really does have a sense of affection, but it was far more than just affection, far more than just feeling, but also having oneself fully given to another and in this case, given to God in all things, at all times, in all ways. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Last Sunday morning, we talked uh, about another passage from Mark chapter 12, where Jesus demonstrates what this looks like through the actions of a woman in the court, a poor widow who put into the temple treasury, you remember if you were here, all that she had to live on two small coins, and she gave everything. 
all that she had to the ministry of God, for the glory of God, all, all, all. But there was more. Uh, Jesus didn't leave it and leave things there. The teacher asked, the teacher of the law asked Jesus, which one of the commandments is most important? Jesus gave his answer. Jesus answered his question, done, time to move on. Next question, please, no. Instead, Jesus continues. The teacher of the law asked which one commandment was most important of all the others. Jesus responds with two. And the second is this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then these words, there is no commandment greater than these two. And with these words, Jesus unites these two great commands of the Jewish scriptures of the law. He joins them together. He makes them inseparable. There were plenty of people who would have responded, yes, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There were others who may have responded and still today will and do. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is one that focuses on religion and a religious system. There's another one that focuses on humanism. Never before had these two been tied together, loving the Lord your God coming first, but then following up inseparably with love of neighbor because loving one's neighbor is how loving God is lived out. It is, according to Jesus, one of the primary and maybe the primary way that loving one's neighbor, or that loving God is played out, is lived out. The first is always love of God, make no mistake about that. We read in John's first letter, love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves does not know, whoever does not love does not know God, God because God is love. This is love, that God first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Here's the order of things. Before we could love at all, before we knew to love, before we had the capacity to love, God loved us because God is love. But then we respond and we respond to love with love. We do naturally sometimes, and we're called to. The God who has loved us is worthy of our love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. But there's more. John continues, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because God loved us and loves us, we also ought to step into God's loving enterprise and love one another. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Dear friends, verse seven of chapter four of 1 John, let us love one another. And John goes even further. This is how we know what love is. We're looking for a definition. Again, it involves emotions. It involves feelings, but it is always far more than just that. And goes to the reality of action lived out, of not only wishing and praying for the well-being of other people, but acting on that as well. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, action, not feeling or emotion. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then off on this caveat, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech only, but with actions and in truth. There are those who love God, who read their Bibles, who sing, who pray, 
who say all the right things, who have their theology right, who have knowledge, who are religious. It's not the most important thing. There are those who do kind and good and loving things apart from God and in fact don't want anything to do with God. We see that in our culture and our world today and just want to be kind to people, random acts of kindness and Jesus won't have any of that either because the source, the wellspring, the furnace of love is God himself, the God who is love, the God who loves. And so love is that thing to which we are called and some of us, myself included, wrestle with this balance of how that all fits together in the most important thing. We think theology and scriptures and doing things right and religion are really important. We're wired to think things need to be done good and in order, in an orderly way. It's important to be right to get things right, to get theology right, so what's more important to be right or to be loving? And my answer was always, it used to be when I was younger, it's always important to be right, but the more I read the scriptures and follow Jesus and live into Jesus' reality, it seems that maybe Jesus had a point that maybe loving actually is more important. Today my answer to the question is, what's more, the question of what's more important to be right or to be loving is, it's to be right. And the thing about which we're to be right is that loving is most important. Are you with me? We need to get this right. It's imperative that we get this right. And so who is it that we're called to love? In the Old Testament, the word neighbor was generally widely understood to refer to one's Jewish neighbors, to one's brothers and sisters in Judaism, in the family of God, to fellow covenant people, to fellow descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not necessarily anyone else. That's who my neighbor was. But Jesus offers this broader view. In the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10, Jesus is asked by a different teacher of the law, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do the scriptures say? He says, well, these are all the commands and they're summarized most clearly and, and Jesus and that teacher of the law agree, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. These things I've done, but who, wanting to justify himself, he asks, is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor that's spoken of here? And he has already loved all of his Jewish neighbors. And so wants Jesus to say, well, it's the people in the family of God to justify that he had already completed all that he needed to do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus has a different answer and he goes on to tell the story that we know is the story of the good Samaritan, which most of us know pretty well. And in our minds, going back to Sunday school, rewind elementary school, preschool and beyond, we think of the story of the good Samaritan, the parable that Jesus tells there in chapter 10 to explain who one's neighbor is. It's really about being nice. It's about being nice, about doing nice things, about being kind, but what if it was about the transformation of the world? What if Jesus' little teaching story is about the transformation of the world and the transformation of every one of our hearts? And so what followed for Jesus was not so much a story about being nice, but a story about a revolution. There are three types of people in the story along the road, there are the first type are the robbers whose ethics suggest that what's yours is mine at whatever cost. 
And the robbers will take what they need through violence or coercion or whatever means necessary. These are the people who will leave us physically, mentally, and emotionally beaten up and bruised along life's road with nothing left but our shallow breath. The second type of person to walk along the dangerous road between Jerusalem and Jericho is represented by the priest and the Levi, by the religious people like you and me whose ethics suggest that what is mine is mine and I must protect it even if it means you get hurt or you live in lack or you suffer in the process. These aren't bad people. These are the people who belong to associations and serve on boards and who coach their kids' soccer teams. They pay their taxes on time. They are decent members of the community. But because of what crossing the road to help might cost them, they put their head down and keep going about their business, keep going down the road. Their focus is inward, toward their own needs and on keeping the 90%, as Laurel said. And it often results with them choosing their own individual rights over the health and well-being of their neighbors or their community. And this is the category where most church people fall. And then there's this third person or category of person known as the Samaritan in this story. And the Samaritan, as you know, sort of the half-breed, looked down upon disparaged person to the Jews, ironically. And his ethic is love. And along one of the most dangerous roads in history, this Samaritan of all people seems to live by a code that says what's mine is yours. The robber said, what's yours is mine. The religious people said, what's mine is mine. And this man says, what's mine is yours. If you have need of it, whenever you have need of it. My safety is yours if you have need of it. My security is yours if you have need of it. My resources are yours if you have need of them. Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this text often and said that the real difference between the priest and the Levite Between them and the Samaritan is the question that each of us must ask. The priest and the Eva, Levite, the, who was like a priest, asked, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? And you know the Samaritan's question. If I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Or more deeply, if I don't stop and ask, help this man, what will happen to me? Who will I become? And so do we off, operate out of fear or do we operate out of love? John, again, in his first letter, the disciple John contrasts those two and makes the opposite of love, not hate, but fear. What do we operate out of? Karl Barth said that, Karl Barth being probably the most prominent and important reformed theologian of the 20th century, Love is the essence of the Christian living, of Christian living, he said. It is the indispensable and essential action, condition, and ingredient. Wherever the Christian life in commission or omission is good before God, the thing about it is love. Let's go back to the end of the story. The expert in the law affirms Jesus' understanding is Jesus' interpretation, Jesus' summary of the law of all the commandments, yes, and the teacher of the law, that these two commandments are most important and even more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And then Jesus, seeing that the teacher of the law had answered wisely, says to him these interesting words, you are not far now from the kingdom of God. And you remember the kingdom of God is the thing about which Jesus speaks more than anything else. What's of most importance to him in his teaching ministry and his demonstrating ministry? Good answer, Mr. Scribe. Good answer, Mr. Teacher of the Law. You've got the answers now. You're so close to the kingdom of God. You're getting closer. You're getting closer. And those last words from Jesus in this passage serve for us, or they should serve for us as they did to that teacher of the law. Both encouragement, this is the way, and warning. There's a little bit more that's involved than just knowing the answer. I think by now most of us know the answer. The challenge now is to live it. The challenge now is to step into it. The challenge now is to identify those people who for us Jesus describes as neighbor. As I was thinking about this this morning, a couple of words came to mind that might in sort of big picture help me to understand and to think about who in my life are neighbors in the broadest and most inclusive sense. And those would be people who are different, people who are dangerous, and people who are difficult. The Samaritan, as it turns out, couldn't be any different than the Levite and the priest. And he was serving people who were different. The guy on the road was different. The people that Jesus was calling the teacher of the law to love we're in a variety of ways different. And so the people who vote differently than we do, the people who raise their kids differently than I do, the people whose values are different than mine, the people who listen to certain genres of music, the people who choose to live in certain neighborhoods or in certain ways, the people who are in a variety of ways are in every way different than you, those specifically, Jesus would say, are your neighbors. And then there are the people who are difficult. And each of us gets to go through, and maybe we should take a moment and pause and sort of get out a pencil and paper or our phones and make notes here and kind of go, wow. Because every one of us has different difficult people in our lives, don't we? That we just think fall outside of the will of God. (laughs) At least when it comes to our responsibility to them to love them. And they're difficult because they're stubborn or they're antagonistic or they just won't get it right or they just won't grow up or they just won't do what we want them to do or they don't affirm us or they slander us. Whether it's at work or school or neighborhood or family system or someone from one's past or someone you fear in your future. They're difficult, different, difficult, and then dangerous. Dangerous to your well-being, dangerous to your financial situation, dangerous to the nice box that you've sort of constructed about what you think and your worldview. These people disrupt that with their different worldview, with their different religious ideas, with their different philosophies, ideologies, or politics. Let's love one another in the church. It'll all be so much sweeter and easier. But Jesus challenges us in so many ways. And this is how we got to 
arrived at. Our values. Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to love all people unconditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, pour into the next generation intentionally, and cultivate spiritual growth continuously. And the one of those, when I've asked over the last few months, which of those is most difficult for you? Which of those are you being most challenged by? Which of those is God speaking to your heart? I've gotten all five answers, but the answer that comes up most often is loving people unconditionally. It's hard. It's all around us. And in our own strength and in our own way, we'll never do it. It's impossible. That's why it's something to which we strive or for which we strive, following Jesus, looking to his example, looking to his way, looking at all the people in the Gospel of Mark and throughout the Gospels and throughout history that Jesus loved that you thought never would have been lovable, never worthy of your love, too difficult, dangerous, or different. For the church to love. And Jesus did it, Jesus does it, and to those things he calls us. A church apart from love as its primary and first and driving value, first love of God, realizing God loves us and first loved us, and then wedded to and enmeshed with loving our neighbors in the broadest sense of that word, is how we become the church to which God is calling us. And so this morning, uh, as we come to the table for communion, I'm gonna remind you a couple of things. what we talk about that we uh, come to this table not because we're loving but because God loved us, not because we're righteous but because God is righteous, not because we're good or aspire to one day be really, really good but because God is good. I also wanna invite us as we confess our need to invite you as we come forward in a few minutes into maybe a life of discipleship and following Jesus' teacher rabbi for the first time or maybe recommitting to that, and along with that, the fullness of his way, his message, his life. Again, there are some of us who affirm that Jesus is the truth, and Jesus calls us also to his way. And when we have the truth, and when we enter into his way of loving people, then and only then do we experience the life of Jesus to which he calls us. So if you're interested in that, uh, maybe for the first time, or maybe recommitting, or maybe to exploring with other people what it means to be in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to obey his teaching, to listen to his word, I encourage you to grab me or someone else, one of our elders or deacons or anyone else, and have that conversation today. It's really important. Let's pray. God, we're uh, often content with our own answers, with the answers that we can handle, uh, with the answers we have, with the answers that we've settled into, with the understanding that is comfortable for us about what it means to be a Christian, to live in Christ, to have salvation. Open us up to the fullness of that and to life in you. First of all, in responding to your love to us. And then loving you back, 
not just on Sunday morning, not just with this or that, not just to and toward this person, but in all ways, in all things, with all of our resources and all of our faculties, and including in that the people that you love also, who are difficult and dangerous and different. Grow in us a love for you through this meal together, unite us in your love with one another and with you yourself, the Holy One. Open our eyes, energize our hearts, move our spirits, heal us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body, broken for you, do this, eat this, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant. They had lots of covenants, the Jewish people did. This is a new covenant, different terms, in my blood, and not the blood of a bull, or a lamb, but in my blood for the forgiveness or the healing of your sin, all that separates you from me, you from God. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in his first letter to the Corinthians that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup in this manner together, we proclaim together as a body and individually the Lord saving death on our behalf and that he's coming again in glory, and he will. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, help us to uh, live into the reality of this bread, of this juice, of your death on our behalf, of your atonement in our place. As we eat and as we drink, fill us with your spirit Nourish us, nurture us, grow us each day and in every way more and more into the likeness of our Lord, your Son, Jesus. And in all of these things, may your kingdom come and your will be done. May you be glorified and we will be satisfied. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so uh, the servers are coming forward in a moment and after that, you will be invited to come forward, everyone here. It doesn't matter if you're a member of uh, this church or any Presbyterian church or any church, the only terms of celebrating the Lord's Supper with us are acknowledgement of our need of a Savior and recognizing that Jesus is that Savior and he wants everything good for you, that he might be glorified and that you might be blessed. Will the servers please come forward? I'm gonna remind you that uh, to take a, uh, a napkin at the front pew when you get up here, if you would like to receive bread in that way, and then uh, you will be served a cup as well after a piece of bread is torn off and put into your napkin, and you can return to your aisle through uh, the side aisles, return to your pew through the side aisles. If you would rather uh, use the uh, pre-poured uh, cups there in the corners, uh, as you know, and those are gluten-free for those who need that. All things are ready.